This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 16. This particular section of Matthew is important, important enough that it's mentioned in all four Gospels, in Mark 8, Luke 9, and John 6. The point that's at issue here is who Jesus is. It makes a huge difference, because if Jesus is just a nice man, a great teacher, or an ancient philosopher with things to say that still apply today, then we are still in need of a Savior. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then God has come to rescue us, and we have hope for the future. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Find your places in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start from verse 13 and read all the way through verse 17. I'm going to cover the first half of that passage today and the second part next Sunday. We're going to talk about the confession about the king, the true confession of the church since day one. The true church has held this confession that we're going to hear from the mouth of Peter. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So let me show you from this particular passage that Christianity will never cease to exist. And I'll give you the reasons for that. So first of all, I want to address with you the confusion about Jesus' identity. That's what we see here in verses 13 through 14. The main point of this passage here is divine revelation of Christ's identity. Now, contrast that with the previous scene when the Pharisees and the Sadducees demanded proof of divinity from Christ. They said, we need to see a sign from heaven before we'll believe you. And thus, we're going to give you an opportunity to prove that you're not satanic, that you're not operating by satanic power. So that's the contrast here. Jesus asks a question of the disciples, not because he needed information. Jesus does not need information. So every time he asks a question, it's to probe a conversation, it's to prompt a confession in this particular case, so that he can elaborate on wonderful promises about his redemptive plan for humanity. Now, the correct understanding of the identity of Christ distinguishes true Christians from counterfeit Christians. In fact, getting the right answer is a matter of life and death, literally, because it determines your spiritual destiny. If you know the right answer to that question, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. Now, those who don't know or, or don't care about knowing the identity of Christ will spend eternity in hell, tragically, but they can avoid 
such a tragic scenario because God has revealed his nature and character to the world in the person of Jesus Christ and in his revealed word here. Take the words of Jesus, for example, in the high priestly prayer, when he says in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So church, if we are interested in telling people how to have eternal life, we need to give them Christ. We don't tell them to come and join the club. We don't tell them to come and join the church primarily. That's secondary. We want to tell them about Jesus Christ. We want them to know Jesus, the one that the Bible speaks of, the one that Peter affirms here in the true confession of the true church from even before the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know about Jesus, but you don't know him personally as your Savior, please pay close attention to your eternal destiny depends on knowing this. Now, the disciples gave Jesus a list of confusing views about the identity of Christ when Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And they gave him the report. Again, Jesus didn't need that information. We do. So that's why the disciples gave that list. Those who, like Herod Antipas, you may remember him, who thought that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated, reveal their ignorance. They probably came to this conclusion, Herod Antipas and the others who believed that Jesus was John, they came to that conclusion because they missed the forerunner's self-disclosure. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. I mean, how clearer can you get? So John says, I am not the Christ. So people who thought that John the Baptist was Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus was John reincarnated, they missed this, that they revealed their lack of information about basic Christology. Because of the miracles of Christ, some people thought that he was the beloved prophet Elijah back to earth from heaven to conclude his ministry. You will remember that Elijah didn't die. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 2, he was taken to heaven in a whirlwind, and God promised to send an Elijah-like prophet before the coming day of the Lord in Malachi 4, verse 5. So perhaps people are thinking, well, maybe that's Elijah back from heaven to conclude his ministry. But again, tragically, people who confuse Jesus with this future Elijah Elijah-like prophet failed to realize that any prophet, any non-divine prophet, I should say, worth his salt, would never claim the title Son of Man, because that would be usurpation of the title of Jesus Christ. So Elijah would never say that. Only the prophet that is divine can say that. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the prophet, the King, the Son of God, who was God the Son. Now, for the same reason, Jesus could not have been Jeremiah or any other prophet, including Moses. Perhaps that's what they were thinking here when they said, well, people believe you're Moses, or people think that you are Jeremiah or of any other prophets, back from the dead or reincarnated. Again, they are revealing their lack of basic understanding of theology, because there is no such thing as reincarnation. But church, I'm afraid that our generation has an equally confusing Christology. Ask the average nominal Christian the question of verse 13, and you will likely get a bizarre answer. For example, Mormonism believes that instead of enjoying co-equality with the Father, Jesus has, quote, inherited powers of Godhood and divinity from his Father, close quote. That's heresy. Jesus has always been God. He's not inferior to the Father. He's co-equal with the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, will insist that the Father created Jesus Christ, which again violates basic biblical understanding of the nature and character of Jesus Christ. Christ always existed from eternity past and will continue to exist into eternity future. 
The day of his birth simply marks the incarnation of the word, the divine word. Islam affirms the office of prophet, but denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. Again, they are in error. Liberal Christianity offers a more generous but no less heretical perspective. It presents Jesus as a mere good teacher, a moral teacher, a martyr who remained in the grave. And the purpose of his coming was to inform us, to give us a good example. No, that's not what the Bible says. He came to die for sinners, for undeserving sinners like you and me. Atheists claim that Jesus was either a fraud or an invention of first century literature. So here's a a sampling of our modern day confusing views of Jesus Christ. Nothing has changed. Every one of these views about the Son of Man misses the truth and not only misses the truth, but invites eternal condemnation. Now, the people who promote them may have good intentions. I'm sure they do. But they are deceived because they do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible revealed in Scripture. And John, therefore, describes them in the second part of this verse here in 1 John 5.12. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So it doesn't matter what you believe sincerely in your heart what Jesus Christ is. If it's not in alignment with Scripture, you do not have life. That is concerning. That is a matter of eternal destiny, a matter of life and death. Again, and I say this with a heavy heart because I grieve for these folks. Some of them are in my family. Some people have a wrong understanding of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure you have them in your family too. But we must pray without ceasing for them, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And not only that, but we beg them. We reason with them on behalf of Christ, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Be reconciled to God. There's no way to the Father except through the Son, Jesus Christ, no matter how sincere that road is. Don't get mad at me. Jesus is the one who said it. I am the only way to the Father. There is no other way. Enter through the narrow gate, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. So if you're in that category today, I, I, I beg you, be reconciled with God. Understand the true identity of Christ so that you can have life. You can enter the kingdom through the narrow gate because the white road is going to lead to destruction. So we talked about the confusion about Jesus' identity. I want to talk about the clarification of his identity now in verses 15 through 20. According to Paul, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is in Philippians 2 verse 11. Which means that everyone that was ever born will have to give an account of how they answer the question of verse 15. It is a personal question. Who do you say that I am? Do you have that knowledge that leads to life? Do you have that understanding of who Jesus is? And again, the answer determines whether they will face him as a rewarder or an executioner. That is very concerning. The answer to that question, when God asks you, who do you say that I am? If you fumble with that question, you are in danger of spending eternity separated from God. Now, the report from the disciples prompted, again, Jesus' personal question directed 
at the 12 here, evident by the use of the plural you here. He's asking, who do you guys say that I am? He's, he's, he's training his disciples. Why, church? Because it would be imperative for them to know the answer to that question. These are the guys who were going to lead the early church. They were going to launch the Christian movement. They needed to know the right answer to that question. Now, they witnessed the Pharisees assaulting Christ's identity, insulting him, calling him satanic, demanding signs and all of that. Now, they needed to understand the true identity of Christ because that is the true confession of the true church. So as a spokesman of the group, Peter here offers the correct answer. The confession that the true church has always affirmed. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. When he says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you are the anointed one. That is the translation of this term. Christ is not Jesus' last name, in case you were wondering. It's his designation of the anointed one. That's what it means, Christos in Greek. The anointed one, the son of the living God, as opposed to lifeless idols. And he proclaimed equality with the Father when he says, I and the Father are one, John 10, verse 30. He is the Word of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The Word of God made flesh who made his dwelling among us. He is the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and is to come. Metaphorically, he is the true vine, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection, and the life. Now, if... He ever asked you personally like he did to the disciples, who do you say that I am? You can quote Peter in this passage and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And furthermore, if you want to really ace the question, you can say, you are the one revealed in your word. In Genesis, you are the seed of the woman. In Exodus, you are the Passover lamb. And you can continue to say, in Leviticus, you are the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, you are the smitten rock. In Deuteronomy, you are the prophet. In Joshua, you are the commander of the Lord's army. In the book of Judges, you are my deliverer. In the book of Ruth, you are my kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, you are the anointed one. In 2 Samuel, you are the son of David. In 1 and 2 Kings, you are the glorious monarch. In 1 and 2 Chronicles, Jesus, you are the priestly king. And you can tell them you are the restorer of the temple, according to Ezra. The restorer of the nation, according to Nehemiah. In the book of Esther, you can tell him you are my protector. In the book of Job, you are my mediator. In the book of Psalms, you can tell him you are my song. In Proverbs, you are the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, the chief good. And you can continue and say in the Song of Solomon, you are the lover of my soul. In Isaiah, you are the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, the man of sorrows. In Lamentations, you are the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, the restorer of God's glory. In Daniel, you are the great rock. In Hosea, you are the husband of his unfaithful people. In Joel, you are the hope of his people. And in Amos, you are the husband's man. In Obadiah, you are the savior. And you go on and say, Christ, according to Jonah, you are the resurrected one. According to Micah, you are the witness. And according to Nahum, you are the avenger. According to Habakkuk, you are the holy God. And in Zephaniah, you are the judge. In Haggai, you are the restorer of the temple's glory. And in Zechariah, the righteous branch. And in Malachi, the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. In the book of Matthew, you are the king of the Jews, the king of kings. In Mark, you are the servant of the Lord. In Luke, you are the son of man. In John, you are the son of God. And you can continue to say, Jesus, in the book of Acts, you are the risen Lord. In Romans, you are my righteousness. In 1 Corinthians, you are my sanctification. In 2 Corinthians, you are my sufficiency. In Galatians, you are my liberty. In Ephesians, you are the head of your church. 
In Philippians, you are my joy. In Colossians, the preeminent one. In 1 Thessalonians, you are the coming one. In 2 Thessalonians, the glorified one. In 1 Timothy, you are my teacher. In 2 Timothy, my helper. In Titus, you are the great God and Savior. In Philemon, my substitute. In Hebrews, you are the sympathetic high priest. In James, you are my wisdom. In 1 Peter, you are my rock. In 2 Peter, you are my hope. 1 John, you are the life. 2 John, you are the truth. 3 John, you are the way. And in Jude, you are the advocate. And in Revelation, you are the Alpha and the Omega. And church, we only know this about Christ. Because the Father has revealed Him to us. There is no way we can find this out on our own. So my fellow follower of Christ... No adversity should ever rob you of your joy. Because like Simon, the son of Jonah, you and I receive, by God's grace, divine revelation that leads us to eternal life. You see, when we put things in perspective like this, our life is full of joy. According to the passage we read earlier today, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In church, that doesn't mean freedom from sorrow. None of us are exempt from sorrow and suffering. But what makes a difference is that we are blessed by God because we know the confession of the true church from the beginning. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nothing else matters. It's not the absence of sorrow. It's not the absence of trials and adversity. But it's the joy that takes us through those things, not out of them. And as a result of that life-giving revelation from above, like Paul, we count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so I may gain Christ. These are the words from a pastor in prison, chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. The worst thing you can do to a preacher is not allow him to preach. And here is Paul saying, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So my question to you, church, is this. Do you count it a great blessing to know Jesus Christ day by day, to walk with Him? Our hearts should overflow with gratitude that we get to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Clearly. If you affirm Peter's confession here and you believe it with all your heart, you share in his blessing. If you know these things, if you know that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, and that's not just head knowledge, it's the affirmation that you pronounce from your heart because the Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, then you will be saved. The Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So because of the clarification of the identity of Christ in this scene, we can make two observations. I'm going to make the first one today and the second next week. Now, we're going to talk about the divine origin of the confession. And next week, we're going to talk about the divine order of the church. 
Let's talk about the divine origin of the confession here. This was not a product of investigation or, or Peter's research. I doubt that he even had the ability to do any research to come with that conclusion. But as a spokesman for the group, he articulated God's view of the identity of Christ. And that's why we call it a confession, because it's God's view. See, everything you believe in has to be compared with God's view. So whatever you believe about the role of government, you have to compare it with the Bible and then formulate your view based on what God says, not what you believe. You adjust what you believe by what God says. So your view of marriage, whatever the Bible says about marriage, should be your view of marriage. Whatever your view about your role as a parent should be what God says about that. But most important of all, whatever God says about Christ, that should be your view of Jesus Christ because it's the divine origin of the confession. What the masses say about him doesn't matter. What scholars say about Jesus Christ and how they describe him has no value apart from what the Bible says. If they are agreeing with what the Bible says, then we say amen. If they're not agreeing with what the Bible says, we reject them. In fact, we'd rather be separated by the truth and united in error. So whatever celebrities think about Jesus Christ may earn them ratings and Facebook followers and whatever, but accomplishes no spiritual value unless they agree what the Bible says, the confession that Peter uttered in this particular situation here. So believers have different opinions about secondary issues. We do, and we live in harmony and in unity because of that. Christians around the world, for example, sing songs of praise in different styles. Saints gather in school buildings, mud huts, trailers, tents, under trees. I've done that too. Under Underground to avoid government capture. Some of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are now facing this. We look different, we dress differently, we sound different, we vote differently, but true Christians all affirm the same truth that elicited the beatitude of Simon Barjona. We believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of His church. He is Christ, the Son of God. So we affirm the Lordship, the Sonship, the Messiahship, the divinity, the supremacy, the primacy, and the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ, one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit. We do it in different languages, audibly or in writing, but we all affirm the same confession, and that's what unites us. That's what gives us the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, because we are united in that confession. In our precious confession about the identity of Christ did not and cannot originate from human investigation. Church, if the Father had not revealed himself to you and to me and to the world in his word, we would not know about how to get saved. We would only know him through general revelation, which is creation. Paul talks about that in Romans. We know the character and the nature of God by looking at creation. I mean, you can't escape it. When you look at the beautiful outdoors, especially here in the Northwest, you have to come to a conclusion that there's a creator. Well, the Word of God reveals not only the nature and the character of that creator, but the love and the grace and the kindness of that creator in becoming one of us in order to die on a cross to save undeserving sinners like you and me. So thanks be to God that the written word reveals the incarnate word who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. According to Hebrews 1 verse 3, Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of the Father. He is not inferior to the Father. He is one with the Father. He's not the same as the Father, but the Trinity, they're not three different gods. They are one God in three persons. 
Furthermore, he is the image of the invisible God, according to Colossians 1, verse 15. And that is why Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So you want to know what God is like? Read about the life of Christ. Learn about him. He has always existed in the eternal present. And he existed even before Abraham was. He said it in John 8, verse 58. He even appeared in pre-incarnate form in some portions of the Old Testament. I'll let you figure that out. By the way, that's your homework for next week. He is God with us, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David. And we affirm these truths, church, even if they cost our lives or our livelihoods or even our political freedom. See, we have to be very careful here not to worship and idolize political freedom. We enjoy it. We've had it for the last 200 years. The day may be coming that we will not enjoy religious freedom anymore. That doesn't change anything. Our mission continues to be the same We are to proclaim the confession that we have just heard from Peter here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we proclaim that whether or not we have permission from the government. And we know that the blood of our brothers and sisters in Christ who affirm this supreme confession soaks the earth. If God gives us the honor of suffering for him, we'll embrace it. Even in our lifetimes, we will embrace it and let it be for his honor and for his glory. And their unwavering commitment, I'm talking about the martyrs before us and our modern-day martyrs who proclaim the confession no matter the cost. Their unwavering commitment testifies of the power of this truth. When you are ready to say, pull the trigger because I am not denying the confession, then you really understand. But this unwavering commitment testifies of the power of this truth. May the comfort-seeking, consumer-appealing, man-pleasing, entertainment-obsessing, and evangelism-objecting modern-day church learn from these ancient and modern martyrs. Learn from Peter that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, the Christ. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.